Welcome to Cows on the Planet Season 2, podcast number 13. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge. One of our most popular podcasts so far has been the one with Karen Boschman discussing the contribution of cattle to climate change. As there seems to be a lot of interest in this subject, we thought to dive in a bit deeper and get a bit greenhouse gassier. My co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, a principal scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge, and Mr. Expert Guy on most of the subjects we have featured. I know that you have more than dabbled with GHGs, Tim, but is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to in our discussion today? Yeah, Kim, well, I, I think we're really lucky to have Frank as a guest. Frank has been in this space for a long, long time and has worked in a lot of areas and not, not only greenhouse gases, but other gases emissions that could potentially affect human health as well. So he's a real guru in this. And I know he travels the world spreading his message about the research he's done and as well as pulling from the findings of others and really putting it together in a nice, straightforward way for people to understand the intricacies and the trade offs that exist within food production. I think, you know, we're always going back to this trade-off concept and no matter what food system we pick, there's going to be trade-offs and Frank is a leading expert in the world in terms of what those trade-offs are and what their interrelationships are. So I'm sure we're going to have a great discussion. So our guest today is Dr. Frank Mittelnoner, Professor and Air Quality Extension Specialist at the University of California, Davis. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Frank. Well, thank you for having me. And it sounds like we're really lucky to have you here, like we are. We know we're lucky and this is going to be great. So can you describe the long and winding or short and direct path that brought you to studying greenhouse gas emissions and other gas emissions from livestock at UC Davis? How did you get there from here? Well, I started here 20 years ago. So I joined the faculty in 2002 and at that point, the Animal Science Department here at UC Davis had the vision of that type of a position, the position of an air quality specialist, being very timely for a place where agricultural productivity and sustainability areas find their nexus, and that's here at UC Davis. And so they hired me and wanted to know what the impact of livestock is on air quality, on climate, on environmental issues, how we quantify and how we mitigate the impact of livestock and poultry on these issues. Well, it sounds like we've come to the right place to ask our questions, and I'll let Tim take the first round at you. So, Frank, we're hearing more and more, there's this common wisdom that's sort of coming out that eating less meat is going to help reduce climate change. And we've heard a number of media figures, pretty prominent people, these influencers, that they've emphasized that they've cut back on eating meat because they care for the planet. We know cattle do produce methane. There's no doubt about that. But when we look at beef production as a whole, does it contribute to the largest share of global emissions from food? Or is there other sectors that we should be paying attention to as well? So there's no question that animal source foods have a greater environmental impact than plant-based foods because we're adding a trophic level. So that's just one initial statement. But when you look at a country like yours, Canada, or the country I live in here, the United States, and what the contribution of livestock is to total greenhouse gas emissions, then, for example, in the United States, it's about 4% that beef, dairy, swine, poultry, and so on contribute to the total greenhouse gas footprint. So 4%. Let's now say that we were 
totally replacing all animal source foods with plant-based foods, then that wouldn't mean that we would emit 4% less greenhouse gases because, of course, we would have to compensate uh, those animal source foods with plant-based foods. And so it would reduce the carbon footprint of a country like the United States by 2.6%. So getting rid of all animal source foods would approximately have an impact of 2.6%. A meatless Monday would have an impact of 0.3%. So if you decide you want to go plant-based or partially plant-based, there might be many reasons, but the one that I don't think plays prominently is the one on climate. So like complete elimination, that's about as much devastation as you can get, right? You're talking about putting a lot of people out of work and a lot of land, I think, that would set idle, you know, because it would no longer be used for food production if you did all that. So it's just eating less beef part of the equation or, you know, that's not going to have a huge impact if we don't look at the emission sources as a whole, right, relative to just looking at beef alone. Well, to me, the use of particularly ruminant livestock is really important in our striving for food security, not just nationally, but also internationally. We are making use of vast amount of marginal land, marginal land meaning that's land that cannot be used to grow any other crops. And in the United States and in Canada, about two thirds of all agricultural land is marginal. So if it weren't for ruminant livestock, we couldn't make use of what grows there, which is cellulose containing grasses and other forages. So that's one aspect, the use of forages. The other one is that particularly ruminant livestock recycles enormous amounts of nutrients. And when I say recycle, I mean co-products and byproducts from crop production, from nut production and so on, uh, makes it into our animals and can be digested and then form highly digestible and bioavailable nutrients for our nutritional needs. I want to say one more thing, and that is the quality of these animal source foods is unrivaled in the plant-based food arena. So to me, I would never forgo the use of animal source foods. I think it's very important, extremely nutrient dense, not just with respect to amino acids, proteins, but also all different kinds of other essential nutrients. So Frank, if we went like the hardcore route and eliminated all livestock from the planet, is there even enough potential cropland on the planet to feed everybody? Like, would we even be able to do that? You know, the whole narrative, the whole question really is centering around the opinion of a tiny, small minority of very vocal people out there who claim that that's what we need to do. The vast majority of people in this country, in your country, and throughout the world does not want to forego animal source foods. But let's say all governments were in agreement that we have to get rid of animal source foods altogether. Uh, we would run into serious food security issues in many, many places of the world, especially in developing countries where entire nations are dependent upon animal source foods. Think of the sub-Saharan Africa. Think of many places in Asia where the entire food system is totally reliant or heavily reliant on animal source foods. But even in countries like ours, what is produced in these animal agricultural operations is a very nutrient-dense food item, whether that's meat or milk or eggs, that comes not just with essential amino acids, but with vitamin B12, with calcium, with uh, selenium, with 
with many nutrients all together in one package. And it is particularly important for those people who are in the lowest income group to have access to that nutrient-dense food. Because they're not calorie deprived, they're nutrient deprived. So the one thing we don't want is have less of that nutrient-packed food available to those people who need it the most. Other little question, we had a like a recent podcast guest, Dr. Edward Bork, and he said that if we converted cropland back into pasture land, that the increased carbon sequestration could put a major dent into climate change. Any any comments on that, that maybe we're going the wrong direction and need to have more pasture land with good carbon sequestration going on? You know, I don't think there is a lot of debate as to whether or not soils are an important part in our fight against climate change, because soils can store about one third of human caused carbon. Okay, so soil carbon sequestration is very important. It is also highly debated as to how important it is. There are voices who say, yeah, soils are important, but after they're saturated with carbon, their carbon capturing ability tapers off. And then there are others who say, no, 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 soils have an enormous capacity. And one thing is clear, soils are not soils. There are huge differences across soil types and also ecological areas throughout the world where in some cases, Soil carbon sequestration is extremely high. In some cases, it's low. But it's also a question of how we manage, how we graze, for example, whether we just not really manage the grazing well or whether we use something like rotational grazing uh, with high-intensity input of livestock, but for short duration on each plot. So I think that soil carbon sequestration plays an important role. How important has yet to be quantified for most locations? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Frank. Like, I think there's less and less debate anyway, at least I feel there is that, you know, the largest portion of our greenhouse gases and climate change is arising from fossil fuels. And if we're going to put the carbon back, we need to put back the equivalent amount of carbon that we're deriving from the fossil fuels that we're burning. So basically, you're talking to making coal or oil or that kind of carbon source, which we don't do, you know, in a 100 years or even 500 years through soil management. So I think it's a challenge to see that you're going to make up for that emissions that have come out as a result of the use of fossil fuels strictly just by carbon. Now, can you have positive effects? Certainly. But to take it back to net zero, which is the next question I want to ask you about, is I think a pretty significant challenge. So that's one of the things, like I know you've done some work saying that the California dairy industry can become a net zero emitter of greenhouse gases, and that's through sequestration and enough carbon to account for emissions. But I know there's critics that are also saying that's kind of creative counting and that maybe it really means that dairy cattle need to leave California in order to get to that net zero emission. And I know there is some movement of dairy cattle out of California as well. I don't think it's because of greenhouse gases. I think it's more economic driven, but there may be some nutrient-related issues there as well in terms of nutrient accumulation. But can you just elaborate on, like, is net zero really possible? Or do we need towards more reducing emissions and increased efficiency, all of which are beneficial, but may not achieve that true net zero objective? Yeah, so I actually don't use the term net zero. I use the term climate neutrality because, in my opinion, that's what we're really after. We're after getting sectors of our society to a point where we no longer 
add additional warming. And that to me is climate neutrality. If I use net zero, then I call it net zero warming. Not net zero carbon, but net zero warming. Why? Okay. Because it's not really about carbon. It is about warming, right? I mean, the reason why we care about greenhouse gases is not because they produce a certain amount of CO2 equivalent emissions, but we care about greenhouse gases because they cause additional warming. So the question is, how does the fossil fuel sector achieve those endpoints? Well, the only way they will achieve it is if they stop burning fossil fuels. Only then will they not cause additional warming. What does it take for the livestock sector to reach that same point of not causing additional warming? Well, the livestock sector does not have to go to net zero greenhouse gases. For example, on the methane side, a reduction of 20 to 30 percent, 20 to 30, 30 percent would be reducing so much warming because this is a short-lived climate pollutant, it would reduce so much warming that it would offset some of the other greenhouse gases, such as nitrous oxide and CO2, to achieve a point by which a farm or a farming sector no longer adds additional warming. We have a very aggressive greenhouse gas or methane law here in California mandating a 40%, 40% reduction of methane. So not 100%, but a 40% reduction. And that is a very aggressive law, one of the most aggressive ones in the world. And at first, our farmers thought this would never be achievable. But little did they know that our public sector decided to partner with them. So the state partnered with the dairy industry and also financially to incentivize the use of technologies to reduce methane. And here, the main technology was covering the lagoons and trapping the biogas from animal manure. This biogas, which is 60% methane, was then not burned or made into power, but this biogas is then converted into a fuel type called renewable natural gas, and that fuel type then finds its way into semi-trucks and buses, replacing what was originally used, which is diesel. This pathway of dairy biogas to transportation fuel has already reduced in California 30% of the methane from the dairy sector. Three zero. That is a remarkable achievement that has been performed over the last four or five years. So to me, it makes absolutely no sense why anybody out there, including the most vocal critics, why anybody out there would not be in support of us finding ways to reduce methane and doing so in ways that doesn't break the bank because these covered lagoons generate credits, so-called low carbon fuel standard credits. And these credits make this not just environmentally, but also financially lucrative to the dairy industry. And this is the reason why our dairies are flocking behind this industry, this technology of covering their lagoon using anaerobic digesters and then taking those credits to the market. That's an approach that works. The approach of taxing or of herd size reductions that are proposed in places like the Netherlands or Ireland have not shown to be effective. One last thought on this. Let's say a given locality were to decide to get rid of a third of the cows in that country, a third of the cows. That seems to be a number that many governments are contemplating with. What would that do to emissions? 
Well, if you, let's say, were to get rid of a third of the cows in a country like Ireland or New Zealand or so, then that would not lead to a reduction of the demand for their products. Their products would still be in demand and that demand would be satisfied by somebody else. So the butter or cheese or whatever comes out of a certain locality would no longer be produced in that original country. It would now be produced in another country. And with it, the emissions would migrate from the original country to the new country. And that is a process called leakage. And that is well known to not resolve emission problems and warming problems because we're just shifting the blame from one place to another. A greenhouse gas doesn't care if it's produced in New Zealand, in Ireland, in California or Alberta. So my next question is not really so sciencey, Frank. It's more like popular culture. But do you have some thoughts about why reducing beef consumption is such a popular pronouncement among celebrities? Is it just an effective way of virtue signaling or is it just an easier thing to change compared to giving up your private jet? What do you think is going on? (laughs) So first of all, uh, there is no comparison between the fossil fuel sectors on the one side and the livestock sector on the other side. Okay, There are people who say, well, they're they're about the same. That's absolute baloney in countries like yours or mine. The fossil fuel sector industries, such as transportation, power production, cement industry, make up 80% of all greenhouse gases, 8-0 that is. So why do certain people flock around reducing animal source foods? Well, they have proposed that for a long, long time. Okay, So many of them have always been in the vegan or so uh, arena of things for various reasons. Uh, the most important one is that they disagree with the notion that animals must die to feed us. They say we should not slaughter animals so that people can eat. They are saying this for ethical reasons, some of them for religious reasons. Many of the people doing this and saying that live in Hollywood. And I had known them long before the discussion was about climate to talk about the same issues, but using a different narrative. I don't buy this climate narrative that they have. Many of them might be well-meaning, but they're not well-schooled in this field and don't really understand how things fit together. But they are really dominating a lot of the public discourse or the public talk around impact of what we eat on climate. And that's a problem because it's not really fact-based. So do you think we need some better-looking scientists to go out and try to change the narrative? Or what What would you suggest? How do we... I don't... Uh, fr- Frank's a pretty good-looking guy. Yeah, like, Frank, Frank is. <laughs> you and I, Tim, are really suited for podcasting. That's good because nobody can see us. But uh, well, Let me tell you this. I think scientists, whether they're good-looking or not, are not the right people to do this because we are normally not good communicators. Okay, That's just normally the way it is. To me, it is particularly important that we get people who actually produce that food to talk. I think it's extremely important for people who are farmers and ranchers to not be afraid of talking to their neighbors, to their community, to the public at large. This is your sector. People make claims about your sector that are oftentimes, or shall I say most times, unfounded. Who is a better expert of how you run your ranch or your farm than you? Isn't it time for you to actually talk about? I think it is. And I think my role and our role as scientists is to accompany that with fact-based information. But it is very important that the farming sector 
and I don't mean some PR firm, I mean farmers, talk directly to the people who consume their food. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Frank. So Frank, I'm just wondering about food loss and food waste. Like it's estimated there's a little over a billion tons that's lost globally every year to those waste streams. And a lot of that ends up in a landfill or decomposes, releasing gases as well. Do you see opportunities for that either to be reduced or for it to play a role as a feed source for livestock. Like I know California has got some pretty interesting dairy diets. You guys have gone over, like I've heard about jelly bean based diets and things like that from your confectionery industry in that. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. So first of all, yes, a lot of uh, food waste as well as agricultural co-products and byproducts such as cotton seeds and almond hulls and so on end up in the diets of livestock. Here in California, about 20% of all agricultural co-products and byproducts go through a ruminants digestive tract. So yes, they are very important in the recycle of nutrients in the States and worldwide. Food waste, food losses are a huge challenge. Uh, I have worked quite a bit with the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the FAO, and heard from them that their estimates for North America is that we are wasting about 40% for zero of all the food we grow. 40% of all the food we grow ends up in landfills. And that is a travesty if you think about these vast amounts. And they are wasted in different amounts by food group. The most wasted food group are the most perishable ones, and that's fruits and vegetables. They are wasted between 50 to 60%. I mean, a number that is just mind-boggling to me. The least wasted food group is animal source foods, such as meats and dairy and eggs and so on. Maybe also because they are pricey relatively, they are wasted at 10 to 20%. But regardless of what we are wasting, we shouldn't waste at that level. Those numbers are just awful. And it's not just North America wasting in that much. Europe is the same. Australia is the same. And what blows my mind is that regardless of all the food insecurity issues around the developing world, food losses in the developing world are also around 40%. But in contrast to the developed world where food waste occurs mainly at the consumer level in restaurants or our kitchens, in developing countries, the food losses, that's what they're called there, largely occur at the producer level because people can't harvest on time, can't transport it to the markets or, or distribution centers, and therefore food just gets lost at that level. But 40% is a global number, and 40% is an unacceptable number, one that really should receive a lot of the focus in the discourse. So in Canada and the U.S., Frank, obesity rates seem to be rising in the wealthier nations of the world. So should we just be, instead of saying eat less beef, saying let's eat less food in general to reduce emissions? Is there any thought about that? Or is that difficult to make it sexy? Like eat beef seems to sell, but eat less altogether. So I'm not a nutritionist, obviously, a human nutritionist. But what I can tell you is that over the last few decades, the consumption of, let's say, beef or dairy or so has not gone up. Okay, But the obesity rate, as you said, has gone up. In fact, in North America, the consumption of animal source foods has been very stable over the last 100 years, except for one commodity that has gone up, and that's chicken. Red meats have been very stable, 
but poultry production has gone up drastically and poultry consumption has gone up drastically. But most importantly, what has gone up and what seems to correlate very well with obesity levels that have skyrocketed is the consumption of ultra-processed, uh, highly caloric junk food, mm-hmm. whether that's chips or whether that's hamburgers and hot dogs and all the candy that's everywhere, as well as all the soft drinks that contain enormous amounts of calories that all has gone skyrocket high. And um, it's very disconcerting to me that we do not teach our kids in school the basics around food, around nutrients, around how to prepare food, how to healthily eat food, how not to waste food. It's just not something that we teach our kids anymore. And I think that's a huge problem. People are pretty much illiterate when it comes to food. And that sounds like me being the ivory tower talking down on the public at large. I'm not doing that, but I'm saying I am very concerned that we are eating too much, not too much nutrient-dense food, but too much calorie-dense food. And that's a difference, okay? If you go to a restaurant today and they serve you what they serve you from an appetizer over the main meal to the dessert and with that some drinks, the amount of calories you take in are enormous for one meal, okay? For one meal. And that's just not sustainable. It has really nothing to do with beef or pork or any of that. It has to do with us eating too many calories, particularly highly refined, ultra-processed calories. Yeah, Frank, I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of research that goes in, you know, from a lot of those manufacturing companies in terms of flavoring agents and studies to really promote the intake and the consumption of those products, often to a level that's more than what would be desirable from a balanced nutritional perspective. And obviously, they can make more money, the more tasty something is, and the more you buy, the more money they can potentially derive from it. But that's kind of like in the developed world. But in the developing world, where I have often wondered, there's many areas where there's undernutrition in those regions. And how can we expect those people to be concerned about greenhouse gases when they're not getting enough to eat or they're not getting the proper balanced diets that enable them to maintain their health? Well, I mean, I can give you a a quick answer. In most developing countries, people are not concerned about the carbon footprint of what they eat. They are concerned to get enough nutrients to feed their families. And uh, I think that's very understandable If you live in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and your family is undernourished in most cases, the first thing you do when you have some more disposable income is to include some, let's say, some eggs or some meat or some dairy in the diet of your family. And you will see very quick responses, healthful responses in those family members, better learning ability in your kids, better brain development better immune system and so on. There's just no doubt that there are many regions in the world where we don't eat enough animal source foods. There are others where we eat above recommended levels. Okay, So we have to figure out what is enough, what's good for us, what's not good for us. For my family, we are foodies. We like to cook ourselves. We always cook ourselves. We even grow most of the food that we eat ourselves. We've even rented a plot of land from a farmer and we're growing all this stuff. Everything but the animal source food, we grow ourselves and we cook ourselves and teach our kids because we find it so important. This is so important. This is not just a little 
thing you do on the side, which is eating your food, but it should be something that, that takes some effort and that people really need to spend some time on. Well, thank you, Frank. We've covered a lot of things in this podcast. This is more than greenhouse gases and you've been a fantastic guest. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you having me and uh, I enjoyed this very much. So, Tim, we've heard that talking about greenhouse gas emissions, it's complicated and that just changing your diet is not going to be enough to really prevent climate change. What would be your take-home points from what Frank had to say? Well, I think the last point that Frank made there about, you know, people being in touch and, and have a relationship with their food is really important. I also really encourage self-gardening and all of that for people to get an understanding of what it takes to produce food, the challenges that are there. And, you know, the, that also connects back into the nutritional quality of what they produce. I think he also made a real excellent example when he talked about California and moving towards climate neutrality in the dairy industry there. And you'll notice the point he made was broader than just the animal itself, right? He was talking about the manure and I think that kind of emphasizes that we need to kind of take a systems approach when we look towards these mitigation practices. And as Frank aptly pointed out, it is possible to make significant and substantial reductions. And then the final point I think that he really kind of drove home was that ultimately food security is important for all regions of the world, whether that be a properly balanced diet, you know, like what we're dealing with North America to avoid some of the nutritionally related diseases that we're starting to experience like diabetes or whether it's in the developing country where undernutrition is often a big issue. And if it comes down to tough decisions, we're going to make decisions in favor of food, right, over greenhouse gas emissions. So I think improving emissions and everything like that is a really an important goal, but it can't be made at the expense of compromising food security and the type of food that we need to maintain healthy diets and healthy people. So thank you also to our listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast, please share them with your friends who also may be interested. We are always happy to take suggestions for future podcasts or revisit topics from old episodes if there is something we have missed. You can send us some feedback on our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram at Cows on the Planet or Twitter at Planet underscore Cows. Our next podcast will be Cows in India. We thought we needed to talk about India given the number of cows in India are more than any other country in the world. And it will feature Dr. Nitin Payaga of the ICAR National Dairy Research Institute in Karnal, India. We need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and theme music developer and is flying through podcast post-production. Uvi Abisakaria is continuing with his lab work and releasing podcasts in his spare time. Christy Thomas is our social media guru influencer, and I can tell when she goes on holidays as suddenly less people are listening. Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We are just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing. <music>